talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Willerskin is in the cloud. In the newsroom, Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard. The following content is the opinion of Scott Thompson and not necessarily the opinion of you. Isn't that cool? When we can have different opinions and debate. Here's Scott Thompson! Yeah! I wasn't sure we was going to go with that. You know, it kind of lures you in with something nice and sweet, then slams you! You at least expect it. Kids. Uh, good afternoon. We're blessed to have them. It's Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Weber on the board in the newsroom. Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard. Uh, yeah, we got a we got a bizarre show coming up. Uh, we're covering everything from um, uh, COVID nineteen to cats. Wait a sec. That could be related. No, that's a different discussion altogether. Uh, uh, remember, we were talking about um, the pizza delivery guy and goes in and 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 snags the cat. I don't know. Didn't tip? I'm not sure. Animal lover? Pet thing going on on the side? Who knows? Uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> they found the cat. Uh, amazing, and an amazing story, and we'll get to that uh, a little later on. And remember, as we're uh, dredging through some of the other stuff, because COVID-19 is coming back up on the show, uh, you know, let's remember this story here, because there's, uh, you know, there's lightness in every day. And uh, in, in this story, for some strange reason, uh, it, it really uh, got my attention, as, I, as I'm sure it has many people. Uh, this, the people ordering the pizza, they get a, a they, uh, the guy delivers the pizza, but takes the cat. Who knows? Uh, but we'll try to find out more uh, coming up a little later on. And the good news is uh, pizza and cat are both at the right homes. Uh, driver, we're not sure what's going to happen with that. That's probably another show. All right. Uh, thanks for uh, tuning in and uh, hope you hang around through the whole thing. Uh, lots to talk about today. Uh, man, uh, the headlines going on. Brooklyn, what a, uh, an incredible situation there. Man, uh, bizarre shooting in a New York subway station. And luckily at this point, although critically injured, nobody killed, which uh, is incredible. Uh, also, Russians uh, being questioned. Use of chemical weapons in the Ukraine war. We're going to talk about that coming up a little later on. Also, more on uh, where we are with uh, COVID-19 and the Omicron second edition, which is the sixth wave. I had this explained to me. Remember, I was asking all last week. I had this explained to me by uh, Dr. Isaac Bogosh. Uh, and, and boy, he's really good at it. He's just, okay, so the first wave was this. The second wave was this after this. And then the third wave. So it's easier for me to go backwards. So the sixth wave is what we're in. The fifth wave would have been Omicron and what we all caught at Christmas time. And then the fourth wave, which was the one I was slept through and not the fifth. The fourth one was sort of, uh, I guess, a little bit of a mild peak or a wavelet, as uh, Dr. Richards would say, Dr. Richardson. So uh, anyway, um, point being is that uh, it is now being called a sixth wave. And all you have to look at or listen to is Dr. Tam, Canada's head doc, and here's what she had to say. Multiple indicators from average daily case counts to lab test positivity and wastewater signals indicate increasing transmission in recent weeks. Unfortunately, 
we're now beginning to see rising severity trends as well. While some degree of increased transmission was expected, we are once again reminded that we need to maintain a vaccine plus approach with a layering of precautions to help lower infection rates, protect vulnerable populations and dampen the impact on our health system. And also went on to say uh, masking, you know, you got to put the mask on. You got to, if you're indoor, indoor settings, that's what she highly recommends. Obviously, they're not mandatory uh, at this point in this province. Or, well, the only province they are is Quebec and, and PEI at this point. Uh, so nothing back to mandatory. And Dr. Kira Moore said yesterday that uh, he doesn't think that happens unless there's a new variant of concern, which is... Um, you know, playing habit with the healthcare system. But clearly, uh, we we are in this second stream of whatever Omicron was or is. And uh, be aware of it when you're out and about. And of course, make sure that you get your vaccinations and such uh, up to uh, date to make sure that uh, you're at least protected if uh, by chance you do come down with it. Uh, it's one of those situations again, much like Christmas, although not quite as bad yet, where you know, I know somebody who's got it or know somebody who knows somebody who has it. So uh, again, uh, obviously something to be aware of and something to think about uh, with getting those boosters and such uh, up to date. All right. Uh, other stuff coming up on the show today, travel insurance. Uh, a lot of people flying around. You know, we got a like a flight plath over our house. I guess who doesn't, right? <laughs> and and you know, over COVID, there was nothing. I mean, you luckily if you saw a cargo plane, and now it's like whoosh, every minute, virtually during peak time. So people are out and about, and they're traveling. And you got to have the insurance in case something happens, especially with something like this. Uh, high spreading Omicron variant where, or variant where, you know, you think you're feeling right, but you're testing before you go on the plane. And guess what? Negative test. You're not insured. You lose the price of your ticket. This is just basic stuff in a new world of traveling with a uh, global uh, pandemic. And, and it's something you got to be aware of. We're going to talk about that coming up a little later on and make sure that you get yourself protected or you are protected, not just physically, but also financially if you do decide to go uh, on a trip. Also, uh, lots of chatter about energy lately, obviously due to what's happened with Russia attacking Ukraine and Russia pretty much holding Europe uh, by the kahunis for energy and, and oil and such, natural gas, what have you. Uh, nuclear energy back on the table. What would it look like in Canada? Well, let's just look at Pickering because we've been doing it for a bazillion years. Uh, and many are asking why uh, we don't look in that direction. Uh, as well, which, you know, again, after, after these plants were built, I guess when in the 1980s, 70s, um, uh, you know, it was the way of the future. It was what have you. And then all of a sudden, nope, keep it in the ground. We don't want it. Uh, it's not worth it. Uh, if there's some sort of accident, we're all going to pay a heavy price. Uh, that being said, uh, technology uh, progresses, and that's why we are where we are. So another discussion we're going to have a little later on in the show. Have you noticed lately that a lot of, some weird, a lot of weird crap going on? People doing weird things? And it's understandable. Look where we are. You know, chasing our tails and such. Uh, no pun intended with that. But yeah, uh, I heard this story the other day. And it was, what? 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 What the? And um, and and then there's you know a party that says, well, you know, it doesn't surprise me in the world we're living in right now. But you remember we were reporting uh, the news department reporting that uh, well, somebody orders a pizza, the pizza arrives, and then the cat disappears. Uh, later on, they checked their uh, security camera, and uh, apparently um, uh, the pizza driver dropped off the pizza and took the cat on the way uh, back to the car. 
And um, then, um, uh, uh, I guess, <laughs> called the pizza place, and we, they eventually got to the area that apparently the cat was dropped off. Uh, and now, as uh, Dave Woodard was saying, the cat's been found. Uh, let's bring in Ken Price of the Dream Team. What is the Dream Team? Well, they found Dwight. Ken, uh, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing great, thanks. So first uh, and, of all, t- and it wasn't. Let me correct that. It wasn't us that found Dwight. It was a nice lady that found him, and then she took him to a vet. She believed that she had found Dwight. She took him to a vet. The vet believed that she had Dwight. They contacted Carlo, the owner, and uh, Carlo went down and confirmed. In fact, it was Dwight. And in fact, the reaction from Dwight when Carlo got there, and uh, then Carlo returned home with Dwight. So how is the Dream Team involved in this, and what do you guys do? We uh, we are a search and rescue. Uh, we're a federally incorporated not-for-profit search and rescue, and we hold a federal license to... Uh, we, we can search for people, but we specialize in missing, stolen, or found family pets, but in specific dogs. We usually only work with dogs. Um, I happen to be personal friends with uh, Carlo and Becca, um, so There's... right in the beginning, we immediately lent them a thermal camera and a night vision scope, uh, so oh. they could see while they were out there and, and lent them a few tools. We dropped traps off at their house. So they were ready, waiting to go and, uh, kind of consulted in the beginning, but then it turned into a big frenzy. So it, we kind of stepped in a bit, uh, a bit stronger and, and kind of helped them with direction and, and, uh, um, to try to get control of the frenzy that was happening up in that neighborhood, trying to look for Dwight. So, so, so um, uh, obviously you had an area which you knew the driver said he uh, apparently dropped the cat off. Uh, then yeah, you start so, searching that area, and and how did the cat get found? Well, Domino's. Um, what actually happened was uh, being a twelve-year-old cat, he goes to dinner or goes to bed early, and. They really didn't notice till the next morning, Dwight's gone. And they went and looked at their cameras, and that's when they saw the Domino's driver stealing the cat. And what happened was he came up to the the porch first and tried to get the cat, and Dwight moved away from him. And then he went back to his car, got the pizza, and then he came back up to the porch, delivered the pizza, returned to the car, put the pizza bags in the car, came back to the porch, grabbed Dwight, and then left with the white. And um, so uh, the, how did, uh, go back to how he was found and the lady well, finding him. So um, we knew the area because Domino's was able to pull up the GPS of the driver. Right. The uh, Carlos uh, went with the driver and he showed him where he dropped his cat off. Um, sightings were coming in. Now, gray cats, you know, we yeah. were getting sightings of every Plenty. cat in the neighborhood. Yeah. Um, but sightings that we believed were him came in. Uh, last night, we installed a, a cellular uh, motion video camera and put uh, his litter out and some of the family's clothing on a porch that he was reported on by three people yesterday morning. Wow. So we put that stuff there. We did get cat ears. In the video last night, it did set the camera off. 
but we can't tell because we only got the top of the head and the ears. We can't tell whether it was Dwight, but where he was caught was that area. Uh, was so, in that area. Well, at the end of the day, great news because Dwight has been recovered. Um, anything you can tell us about the driver and the motive or why any of this happened? I have absolutely no idea. You know, I being an animal rescue, I can't phantom what he did. You know, to hear this cat was a family pet, and and we all look at our pets as children. You know, yeah. that that's how strongly we hold our pets. And, you know, there were two children, young family. The cat was 12 years old. It had been yeah. with them its whole life and now dropped in a neighborhood where, it, it, A, it's not used to being an outdoor cat. It's used to only being on their front or back porch. It never leaves them and hasn't in 12 years. And now it's out in the wild. You know, I just can't phantom. Very bizarre. A bizarre story, but uh, again, uh, a happy ending, and that's all you can ask for, especially, you know, in the business you're in, Ken. What the heck? Absolutely. Uh, Well, thanks so much, Ken, for sharing the story with us. Ken Price with us of the Dream Team. Uh, Still don't know all of the story, but what we do know is Dwight is back, and that's good news for the family. Ken, thanks so much for the time. Be well. My pleasure. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. I remember uh, where uh, when COVID first started, first, second, whatever waves they were. Uh, anyway, um, you know, most places, especially around Hammer, you know, there's planes flying all over the place. And there's, uh, you know, often if you're in a flight path, you'd see them coming by, you know, every minute or so uh, during busy times. Uh, and such. And it was obvious during pandemic and almost spooky because you couldn't hear any cars on the road. You couldn't hear any planes in the sky unless it was a FedEx plane. <laughs> you know, other than that, it was pretty quiet. And, uh, both my wife and I have noticed that over the last several weeks, a uh, couple of months, it's really started to take off. It's really started to, uh, you really notice people are traveling more, people are flying, and there's just many, many more planes, uh, that are in the air. And obviously, uh, testing requirements have been altered and such, uh, and, uh, you know, a little bit more relaxed. And, and I think maybe some travelers have become a little lax and just take for granted that you're going to get on a plane without any problems. But if you test negative, uh, that's when things get complicated. And, um, uh, you know, if you're here, that's one thing. You're not stuck in another place. But what about the price of your ticket? And uh, what if it's an all-inclusive, one of those deals? What happens? Well, if you've got sure, insurance, you're covered. Um, but many don't. And, you know, right at the last minute, unaware or thought they were, whatever the situation, and uh, some travelers have found themselves uh, out the money of a uh, of uh, of their tickets due to uh, just not having the insurance. To talk more about all of this, Kaylee Aline is with us, editor, journalist, and on the air now. Kaylee, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, I hope you're well as well. <laughs> so is this happening a lot now? Uh, do you think travelers are becoming a little bit lax because some of the protocol is dropping? Yeah, I think the more we hear about restrictions dropping here in Canada, you know, we have to understand that going to an international destination, there will be still varying restrictions or varying entry requirements. And we're also seeing restrictions kind of 
being a little bit more lax in our day-to-day life, but we're also in another wave and a, a surge of cases. So we need to be cautious when it comes to that pre-departure testing, then you're doing what you can to stay safe, but also reduce your risk for that upcoming trip. So again, just a reminder, tell travelers what they need in order to get on that plane. Yeah. So to get on that plane right now, you need to be either fully vaccinated or have a pre-departure test to return back to Canada. They actually remove the, the testing, but depending on your destination, testing and requirement varies. So we know in certain international destinations, they still do require the, the pre-departure testing um, before arrival. And then there's usually a time window. And then we're also seeing in a few European destinations that being double vaccinated actually has to do with the time from your last vaccination. And that's around, I believe, a nine month mark. But please double check it because it differs per location. Um, so you're really having to look at different travel hubs and really understand, you know, what's going on and what's the current requirement. So uh, in other words, if your bags are packed and you're ready to go and you do a pre-boarding test and you come back positive, uh, obviously you're not getting on the plane. How does insurance, how do you get reimbursed? What happens if you don't? Yeah. So we're at kind of an interesting time in the pandemic where they are offering some code related travel insurance. And then a lot of travel hotels, flights, you know, all the things that you're going to um, have in their stipulations that sometimes if the cancellation is COVID required, they're not covered anymore because, you know, if you book an Airbnb and you're canceling it a day before, that's the host that ends up having to incur the cost to not get the new booking. And at this point in the pandemic, COVID's not something new. So you really have to read the fine print that your travel insurance is COVID related or what the stipulations are for that. And then also, you know, what your cancellation policy is. Is it a 48 hour window? Is it a 24 hour window? Or is it up to a week in advance? So you'd really just have to double check with your hotels, your accommodations, your tour operators and what their setup for that is. And, and you bring up a valid point. So it's not just about having cancellation insurance for COVID. It's what it all means. Cause obviously there's different uh, policies, different, uh, uh, guidelines and such. Exactly. And, you know, it's going to vary by tour operator, by property, whether you're staying at a vacation rental or hotel, whether you're at an all-inclusive, you know, they're all going to have different requirements for what they, you know, what they're asking for travelers, but also what they're allowing in terms of cancellation. Uh, reading the story about this couple who uh, was trying to uh, get to Jamaica and uh, obviously uh, tested positive for getting on the plane, they thought because uh, they could cancel, uh, they were allowed to cancel early, but again, as you've just pointed out, there had to be a window of a certain period of time in order for that to happen. Uh, that's one thing. That's not really COVID insurance, is it? No. And I think, you know, we have to understand for these tour operators, these hotels, these resorts, they can't rebook your spot. So we understand that there's going to be a bit of a window. You know, my advice to travelers is, you know, just as you would pack and prepare for a trip, maybe pare down your life a little bit in preparation for the trip to reduce your risk, because you are going to have to do the testing. You are going to be around people. So if you know that you've got a few things that are a little busier, maybe try to plan your trips with a grace period of maybe a week to two weeks where your life's a little bit quieter so you have less risk of exposure so uh and as we were saying uh, as you were saying earlier uh the co- the testing requirements to get back into the country uh have changed but as you mentioned depending upon your destination certain places that you are traveling to uh, still may require all of this 
Yeah. And I think it's really just doing your a really thorough research in advance to understand kind of what their current situation is and what their requirements are. And you're just being as respectful as possible. And just the same way that you, you, you know, look for visa and entry requirements and all that kind of stuff. You're looking the same thing for COVID requirements currently and what their current policies are. So where do you get COVID-19 insurance, flight insurance? Would this be part of your ticket? Is it an extra thing? Is it part of the resort or the airline? How, how do you do this? Yeah, you know, it's funny because I feel like in the last, what, 10 years or so, we've kind of gone away from um, using travel agents and we just book everything online ourselves. Yeah. This is the time when having a travel agent to advise you is actually really, really beneficial just to answer all those questions. Um, you know, you can often get insurance through your credit cards and banks to um, CAA and other providers. Um, but it's really reading the fine print because, you know, I have a credit card that is a travel credit card, but it might not have the full in- code insurance. It might just have, you know, before the pandemic, what the normal yeah. like, health and travel insurance is, you know, even I think it's my like my health premium on it is like up to a million dollars, which seems like a lot. But if you're in a destination for 14 days undergoing, you know, medical care, that might that credit card insurance might not cover what you need in terms of kind of COVID support. So I think you just have to be very careful with what you're booking and kind of the risks that you're taking. And you bring up a, val- a very valid point, Kaylee, is that prior to COVID, there were so many different options, right? Like, you know, at one time you had to go buy something separate. Then there was credit cards that covered this sort of thing and la, la, la. So there's lots of different options there. Uh, and, and most people thought, well, you know, I'm covered in some form or another. But when you bring a global pandemic into the world, everything changes. Yeah. And I think, you know, even before this, when it came to insurance, you really have to look at, you know, what your policy is. Has your medical history changed? Has your requirements changed? Are you on, um, you know, different medication than you were before? Or is your length of travel um, shifting? You know, with some kind of standard insurance programs, it's usually for a vacation that's under a certain day. But if you're looking to be kind of a snowboarder or work abroad for a month, you know, your insurance on your credit card might not cover it because it might be, you know, up to 10 days or up to 14 days or whatever Mm -hmm. their allowance is. So you really have to look at that fine print and see if it's fitting into the way you're traveling currently. Kaylee Aline with us, editor journalist, talking about having travel insurance and why you need it even before a uh, global pandemic, but even more so uh, during, and make sure you're reading the fine print. Kaylee, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Yeah, you as well. Take care. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Especially since we've seen happen uh, what's been happening in Ukraine at the hands of Russia and uh, the stranglehold Russia has over Europe when it comes to energy. Lots of chatter about energy uh, in this country, uh, you know, especially with um, uh, the the energy and oil sands out west. Uh, the new Beta Nord, which uh, was very quietly announced uh, just before the budget came out off the shores of, of Newfoundland. Uh, that'll start production in about six years. But uh, what about nuclear? And is this a bad word now? Because those of us that are old enough to remember the 70s and such when Pickering uh, was opening and, and running, uh, this was the future. And then all of a sudden, not so much. Let's bring in David Novog, professor, Department of Engineering Physics at uh, McMaster University, and is with us now. David, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Yes, I am. Thanks for having me. 
Give us a little bit of uh, the history of, of nuclear in the sense that I remember, I'm old enough to remember in the 70s, this was the way of the future, this was the next big thing, and then all of a sudden uh, it, it, say, it seemed that there were as many trying to shut down nuclear as there were trying to fire it up. Can you give us some context here? Yeah, including my mom, who, who doesn't see eye to eye with me on, on all issues uh, <laughs> there, Scott, but... Yeah, well, it's okay. So I, I guess one thing today is is while while it might not be you know as exciting or in the news, nuclear is still supplying about fifty percent of the electricity in Ontario, which, which is a you know the largest percentage out of any source. And so while while it may not be as attractive or you know media friendly as as some other technologies, it's kind of the workhorse in Ontario, and it's been for a long, long time. Um, and it's and it's low carbon. I mean, t- these days with with all the stuff on the you know uh, climate change, I think it's important to recognize that Ontario is actually one of the cleanest electricity grids in the world because we're lucky enough to have you know a, a large percentage of hydroelectricity and mm-hmm. and uh, a, a, a lot of nuclear capacity. So I, I think it's um, it's probably a combination of a few things. Um, that, that have led to that. I mean, there, the, the accidents that happened in Chernobyl, certainly in the 1980s, and then more recently in Fukushima, have certainly brought uh, the areas of nuclear safety into, into concern and, and, you know, making sure that if we are to build again or, or new reactors, that they really represent the latest in safety and, and have all the features built into them that we've learned from those accidents. So why in the news now, why is this all of a sudden becoming a, an attractable, uh, uh, perhaps an, a, an attractable option here? Is it because um, of the lack of emissions? That being said, there was always concern about uh, an accident or even the storage of waste. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, those are all really important issues that, that I think need, need discussion uh, over the coming years. I think if we look at electric vehicles, just as one small area mm-hmm. by 2030 electric vehicle sales are supposed to, are targeted to be 60% of all car sales so that means you know as we go forward and that's not too long from now right like like my kids will still be in school by then and if if we're going to have that type of fleet of electric cars and we're also looking at taking a lot of you know steel making and and, and other processes and trying to electrify them we're going to see demands in Ontario, locally in Hamilton, you know, everywhere for electricity going up. And I think if we don't do anything, you know, if the demand for all that electricity is increasing and we don't do something to increase supply, it means the prices of electricity are going to go up. And, and, and you know, we want to make sure that, that industry is attracted to Ontario, that consumers have access to cheap electricity. And so I, I think that's really been the driver in the last few years is that if people recognize that the electricity has got to produce somewhere for all these things that we're moving towards and, and nuclear, you know, can supply a, a large chunk of that. Yeah, but but let's be honest, uh, David, in uh, wind, solar, that's what we're talking about or that's what we've been hearing about in, in the past few years. Are you surprised nuclear is now becoming an option again? What, what do you see the future for Ontario here? Actually, I think the future needs everything. I tell my students in our energy studies class, like we're we're at sort of a point where our demand for electricity is so high and, and yet, you know, climate change is such an important issue that we really can't take any technology off the table. We're going to need, I'm a big pro- pro- proponent of building 
as much solar capacity as you know we we can we can tolerate and, and afford and as much wind capacity in the regions where we have some you know good wind patterns and i think what everybody's beginning to recognize is that those two technologies alone won't be able to supply the grid for what what people are envisioning for 2030 and beyond you bring up a valid point david and and you know it, it seems that this is the discussion now we're having but we haven't really up until this point because it always seems one or the other we have to do this or we have to do that but many have said just as you have uh that this is a combination of a lot of well whatever we have yeah yeah and in ontario we're in good shape i mean to be honest with our large supply of hydro we got places with really good wind patterns we do in, in lots of times during the year have a pretty good, you know, solar flux coming down and we have a good base load of nuclear. I, I think what's exciting, you know, for us in academia and as well as with some of my industry partners is if we have such a good mix here in Ontario, maybe there's opportunities to export expertise and equipment and components, you know, to regions that are just starting to realize this, like in the Midwest United States that still relies heavily on coal and, and natural gas and so on. So I, I think it's, you know, Ontario's, um, you know, by planning over the last 34 years and maybe a little bit of good fortune, it turns out that we have a pretty enviable mix of electricity to many, you know, as compared to many locations in the world. What do you think you're going to hear politically on this? Well, I know politically it's kind of a little bit like a football. Um, I, I do see, though, that some recognition, you know, federally, uh, you know, there's been recent announcements that, that nuclear, you know, is certainly has to be considered in the energy mix. And I think in the last month, Ontario, the government of Ontario released a strategic plan to try to uh, speed up the deployment of, of new nuclear reactors. And that's really in collaboration with four other provinces who are also interested in, in you know, uh, getting nuclear deployment uh, accelerated so that they can you know, make meaningful progress in meeting some of these CO2 reduction targets. David Novog with us, professor in the Department of Engineering Physics, uh, McMaster University, talking about the future of nuclear back on the table. Was it ever left? Not really, but certainly we're talking a lot more about it. David, thank you for the time. Be well. Thank you very much, Scott. Have a good day. <laughs> I can't believe it. I just don't believe it. Just forget it. Look at this. Look at this. I'm so ticked off that I'm molting. <laughs> uh, Gilbert Gottfried as uh, the parrot in Aladdin. And, uh, uh, yeah, the rest is uh, history, as they say. Passing away today, uh, it is 421. I'm Scott Thompson. Hamilton today. Will Weber is on the board. Dana Weeks and Dave Woodard in the newsroom. Bill Brio is joining us, TV critic and author. Brio.tv to find out more. He's with us now. Bill, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Uh, I'm fine, Scott. You too. Your thoughts uh, when you heard of this? Uh, obviously, uh, from what from what I'm reading here, he was ill. But uh, but what can you tell us about his passing? Yeah, it's very sad. Uh, he I, apparently he had been ill for a while. But you know, it's just like everything happens in threes, right? Yeah. He was good buddies with Bob Saget, and he posted this touching photo on Instagram just you know months ago when Louis Anderson died, saying how sad it was that these two pals had passed away. They were all about the same age. And um, I think for a lot of comedians, Gilbert Gottfried was the comics comic. He was one of those guys that you came up with in the clubs from the way back in the late 70s and 80s. And um, he just was 
funny, you know, like his voice, everything about him, edgy too. He could be pretty crude, but uh, I do have one very memorable story if you want to hear it. Yeah, go for it. So I don't know, 30 years ago at least, um, I was at an event in Toronto and at all these comedians, it was so long ago, Scott, Henny Youngman was among <laughs> the people, might have been 35 years ago. Wow. And they had uh, all these comedians, I think Global had something to do with it, but um, among the comics was Gilbert Gottfried, Henny Youngman, and uh, Joe Piscopo. Now, people might remember him mm. from Saturday Night Live. Yeah. And, uh, Gottfried was on Saturday Night Live as well. Uh, but Piscopo's thing was he would impersonate Frank Sinatra. Yes. He'd put on a wig and put a jacket over his shoulder, and he would start crooning. And he did it incessantly on the show. So when he was performing for this Toronto venue, he says, you know, everybody always wants to hear my Frank Sinatra impression. A doobie doobie doo. And he, was, and then he finishes his set, sits down, polite applause. And up gets Gilbert Gottfried. And <laughs> just warning you and listeners, back off from your phones, or your speakers. I'm going to try to impersonate Gilbert Gottfried. But he comes up next and he starts off, he goes, you know, everywhere I go, everybody asks me to do my Sinatra impression. <laughs> and he just literally re- replays Piscopo's entire set word no. for word. No. Every, everyone in the room was on their knees laughing. I remember Jim Slotek, and I worked with the son, the two of us looked yeah. at each other, tears running down our faces. It was so funny. And, you know, like, so the only one not laughing was Joe Piscopo, who just had his legs cut off. Like, it was brutal, but it was very, very funny. So uh, he not only did the opening line, he did the show. He he, he did his did. act. He just kept going. He wouldn't be... It was sort of like Norm Macdonald who would dare people to look away or to not get the <laughs> yeah, joke. Yeah. He just pushed it for five minutes, and, oh, it was so, so funny. But I, and, I, I, and, I, and obviously got a greater response than the Joe Piscopo, Piscopo oh, version. Not only that, I don't think Piscopo worked again. You know, like he destroyed him, not in Toronto anyway. Um, yeah, it was, it was very funny. And, uh, you know, it was great to see him get mainstream success as, I guess, Iago, the parrot. Yeah. But his comedy, I'm sure he got in trouble with Disney because he could, he could be pretty crude and blue as well. Um, but I did see him years later at Just for Laughs in Montreal. He performed there. And, uh, you know, wherever comics were, you'd find him. And uh, you'd never find anybody who had a bad thing to say about him. And, you know, very much like a Don Rickles in the sense that he really challenged political correctness. And sometimes he was in fashion, sometimes he was not in fashion. And I believe he did get in some trouble uh, because of things he said and, and perhaps lost a couple of those lucrative deals. Is that accurate? Yeah, I don't think he made a lot of Disney movies after Aladdin. Um, yeah, I, I do believe that, you know, someone else had to do the voice later. I can't remember what it was, but he was not made for... Uh, this era we're in where, um, you know, everything is woke and uh, people are second-guessing things. And, uh, you know, he just went for it full throttle. And that was what was so funny about him, but uh, probably a career limiter in terms of mainstream comedy today.
Um, you know, and many, you know, many comedians of that era were faced, and even before his era, were faced with this. Uh, some maneuvered around it. Others didn't want to. Others refused to. I remember way back in the day when Don Rickles was uh, very politically incorrect and then got, so, uh, you know, f- uh, blowback from it, but then somehow reinvented himself and came back. It's astonishing to look on YouTube at all clips of Rickles on The Tonight Show and hear the stunning things he says, which just yeah. seems like a list of racist things you could say, and he gets away with it, and uh, there wasn't, there was some wincing, but, he, you know, he. I think by the time he was in his 80s, people just grandfathered him into, into all that. Um, but, you know, th- there were other comics, there's a great special coming up um, in May on HBO uh, on George Carlin. Uh, oh. Judd, Apat- Judd Apatow is producing it, and it's George Carlin, um, American Idol or something, but it's going to be a two-part look at his career. And there's a guy who, you know, he reinvented himself and became edgy and went into the colleges and performed after doing Sullivan, you know. Uh, And some of the things he said still ring true today on Twitter. (laughs) But could, could even George Carlin get away with some of that now? You know, you'd have to wonder. That'll be fascinating to watch for a uh, George Carlin special coming out. Uh, Bill Brio talking about TV critic and author Bill Brio talking of the passing of Gilbert Godfrey. Uh, Brio.tv to find out more. Bill, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Lots of chatter about a uh, federal conservative leadership race uh, because it's just so dang long. I think it's uh, the end of the summer, September, uh, by the time they uh, pick a new leader. And Pierre Pauly of certainly gaining a lot of traction and making a lot of noise, getting a lot of people out. Um, and uh, others like Jean Charest have kind of fallen by the wayside uh, until uh, very recently. Uh, when I, I guess Jean Charest uh, said that Pierre Polyev shouldn't be running because of his support for uh, the Freedom Convoy. And then at one, t- at one point, the advisors to both of these uh, leadership contenders started going at it. So, uh, you know, it makes for great, uh, it makes for great media. And uh, it's unfortunate that this is what they get noticed at, uh, noticed for, as opposed to any accomplishments they might have made. And we're all still waiting for that. Uh, Let's bring in Mike Van Solen, managing principal at Navigator and is with us now. Mike, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I I am well. It uh, feels like an actual spring day. And uh, so that's nice and, and great to join you. Thanks for taking the time. We appreciate that. Uh, obviously, Polyev uh, out in front, bringing in the crowds, getting the headlines. Uh, many chatted about Sheree at the beginning. He seems to have fallen by the wayside. Is this uh, is the objective of the whole Freedom Convoy thing? Is that designed to throw him back into the headlines, or is, is this just going to divide an already divided party? Um, well, well, we'll find out in time how divided the party is, but I do think Jean Charest has struggled to find any traction. Uh, it, it does feel to, to those of us watching it that he's a bit of yesterday's man, and he just hasn't been able to generate the excitement that's needed. And, you know, you have to give Pierre, uh, Pierre Polyev credit, too. He's been working hard at this. And, uh, you know, well, yes, he's a career politician. He's been in the federal government for uh, quite some time. He's also worked his butt off, cultivated a lot of relationships across the country. And I think we're seeing that uh, come to bear uh, through this race. 
Uh, why not traction for Jean Charest? Uh, does the uh, agreement between the NDP and Liberals have something to do with this, uh, extending the time to the next election? Because at one time, people thought, well, this, again, is, is someone who, who can bring both sides of this party together. Well, I, I do I do think there's a little bit of, uh, you know, what is the Conservative Party today and what are the two sides of it? Uh, what What's clear to me is there is a big Conservative base. And while that uh, may not be a group of people that, you know, polite company, uh, you know, like, uh, that is a big part of the party. Uh, you know, the West has felt left out for a long time. Uh, we saw, you know, I think it's different, but we saw Maxime Bernier and the, and the PPC have some traction because they didn't feel their views were reflected in any way in what was on offer previously. So uh, I do think Pierre is looking to bring the party together around, particularly around economic issues uh, where, uh, you know, those old ideas of, you know, perhaps, you know, hard right and and red Tory uh, could come together. And, uh, and, and he is certainly tapping into an enthusiasm uh, across the country, a, a group of people who feel, I guess, left out a little bit by the system, uh, for whom inflation has been uh, a real challenge. Uh, and, and certainly he's tapping into just a bit of grievance uh, politics that isn't, you know, isn't the, isn't the most polite and, and nice thing to look at. But, uh, but there's something there. Uh, and I think perhaps in, in the way the... Uh, you could look at uh, you could look at Pierre embracing the the trucker convoy, particularly in its early days, but you could also look at the uh, the smugness with which Trudeau treated it. And uh, mm. you know, while not most of us wouldn't want to be on the streets of Ottawa, I do think we came uh, we come at the issue as Canadians in many different ways. And it, and it looks to me like there's a lot of people who didn't agree with the protest, but there were some sentiments behind it that uh, that may have appealed to them, uh, particularly when they felt dismissed uh, after two years of the pandemic with how uh, with how Prime Minister Trudeau reacted to it. Um, obviously, uh, you can see how the base is appealed, uh, appeals, uh, uh, or sorry, Paul, have appeals to the base. That being said, how does he expand that to, uh, to encompass what many thought Sheree would bring and, and unite how, especially young people, how does he modernize this party? Well, I think he has to get the party to kind of rally around sort of a new set of principles around around the economy. Uh, he was the first one on the on inflation, and and I think there is if he was to grow the party, I think that is a is a particular area that could be strong. We have uh, you know in in the GTA uh, GTHA, uh, we have a lot of people, young people, struggling to afford their first home. The uh, I just saw a stat; it's an American stat, but an American stat that said you know. Uh, between the age of 20 and 30, the most common place for someone to live today in the States is with their parents. Uh, I imagine mm. we would see the exact same thing, even even not probably perhaps more extreme here. So I think he could tap into uh, suburban sensibilities with uh, a real commitment to make uh, home ownership uh, more more achievable. Um, and, and, you know, there's, uh, there's a cost of, you know, we're all going to the grocery store and we're all seeing it. And and we can have philosophical arguments about uh, public policy, uh, but that's that's one that everybody gets because every time they go to the grocery store, they're reminded of the cost of living. So, uh, so, so I think affordability—just how it hits the pocketbook when you're uh, when you're filling up your car or uh, trying to put food on your plate—is something that could resonate far and wide. And and as well, the bigger ticket items like a house—you uh, know—I I could see that being a real. Uh, 
certainly where Pierre should be looking if he wants to broaden the base uh, of the Conservative Party. How would how should he react, his campaign react, to those who try to paint him Trump-like? I mean, even some conservatives have done that. Yeah. Uh, or to the extreme right. How, how does, because if you're to the extreme, you can't unite. So how does he combat right. that? How does he, how does he paint a different uh, narrative for himself? I, I think he is a, he is a really smart guy. Uh, he is a brash, uh, brash talker. Uh, and so I can understand how those, those sentiments and parallels may be drawn. I think he ha- he has a two-step process here. He has to win the conservative leadership race, and then he has to go on to a period appeal to the general public. And, uh, you know, it is a mistake to say something during the leadership that you're not going to stand by in, in the general election. So I think he has to be really careful about what he actually says. He has been good at pushing back on characterizations that are wrong. Uh, people have tried to put words in the mouth, in his mouth, and, and, and he pushes back on those. And that will be critical. Uh, he has to get through this leadership race with an eye to the general election and not make, uh, you know, silly commitments, uh, make, uh, make, uh, make, poor statements that could be thrown back at him at, at that time. So I think it's thinking about both contests while, while working on the first one. How does uh, this party pick a leader and campaign for that without destroying its image in the next few months? You know, this has been the challenge for the Conservatives in, in the last few <laughs> kicks at this can. Uh, what, what we see in, with Pierre, uh, you know, Canadians may like it or not uh, will come a general election, but he has not been willing to back down about uh, about a number of issues that have made uh, earlier Conservative leaders weak need. You know, on the issue of uh, of, of the carbon tax, he's been uh, you know staunchly uh, staunchly against it, and then on cult- cultural issues that have uh, so often been problematic for conservatives, he seems to have an ability to uh, to not back down to talk from a point of principle about uh, what he believes. Uh, will you know? Time will tell whether. Uh, you know, particularly, I think suburban Canadians, you know, find his his answers uh, make sense uh, that they see him as being sincere, uh, and and I think what will uh, probably cause real consternations, uh, you know, for for polite Canadians, is he's he's perhaps going to even lean into some of those cultural issues where in the past they were always a a wedge issue that that liberals used to to make conservatives uncomfortable. Uh, Right or wrong, we could see Pierre sort of turn the tables and actually lean into those issues uh, because he believes that there's Canadians who have uh, have a different perspective on them than uh, than typical mainstream media would would uh, would acknowledge. Mike Van Solen with his managing principal at Navigator talking about the race for the federal conservative party, which winds up in September. Mike, thanks for the time. Be well. Yeah, you bet, Scott. Thanks for the time. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Still watching, what is it, day 48 now of uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. We all know, we've seen the images 
but now there's chatter of whether uh, Russia used chemical weapons in Mariupol. Uh, let's bring in Walter Dorn, uh, Walter Dorn, Ph.D. Department of Defense Studies, Royal Military College of Canada. He assisted in the negotiation, ratification, and implementation of the Chemical Weapons Convention. He addressed parliamentary committees and nations on several continents to support the ratification and implementation, uh, implementation rather, of this treaty. And Walter Dorn is with us now. Walter, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Uh, thank you. Uh, thank you, Scott. Do we know if chemical weapons have been used a- at this point or not, or is this still an allegation? Where are we with this? There is uh, growing evidence that chemical weapons were used, but we can no longer con- we cannot at this point conclude that there were chemical weapons. How do you conclude? What do you need to find out? Um, ideally, you'd actually have detectors that detect the agent uh, in collaboration with uh, information of people who were affected. You could see the symptoms. You have videos of the people with the symptoms, and you could do a medical examination of those people. With that, by an objective uh, source, then like the OPCW, which is the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, if we had that, then we'd be really confident. Why do we think there were? What is the indications that are pointing to this? Right. So um, the allegations were made by uh, an Azov unit in Mariupol. It was amplified by the member of parliament, who is formerly the deputy prime minister, um, who said that, uh, that, that, that these allegations seem to have truth to them. And um, they say that some of the people, uh, the Ukrainians who are fighting the Russians, experience symptoms that are similar or identical to those which you experience with chemical weapons, the choking, nausea, you know, uh, extreme red soreness and, and burnt eyes, etc. It would seem, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Walter, that this would be relatively easy to figure out simply by the victims and their um, and what their signs of trauma are. Right, but in Mariupol, for instance, um, it's very hard to get there. So mm. videos from there, we don't really know. We don't have uh, objective or independent sources. And uh, there's, there's a dozen checkpoints to get in and out, and even humanitarians have a really hard time getting uh, in and out. And uh, the human rights uh, observers that are necessary, they uh, aren't permitted in. So we, we, even communications is very difficult with Mariupol now. So we just don't have the kind of um, links that are needed to, to get the kind of evidence that we need to make a call on it. But at the same time, uh, that's gr- there's growing evidence, and that means the world is now on watch. And the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons and the UN Secretary General, who also has a role in investigation, they're both uh, following this to see if they can get some teams in. If this is confirmed, how does this change the discussion, Walter? Well, this is um, a, a red line that's uh, often being declared. It's a it's a major violation of an international law and prohibition. The uh, Ukrainians and the Russians both signed the Chemical Weapons Convention, and if Russia were to have used it, then it would be in violation of the Chemical Weapons Convention, which uh, prohibits the development, the production, stockpile, and use of chemical weapons. We know that Russia has used it in the past, but only on uh, cases of attacking individuals, that is, you know, former spies and, and the like, in Salisbury, England, where they, uh, they some FSB officers brought in some chemical weapons agents. And we know that Russia still plays around with them, like the Novichok uh, agents that they used in Salisbury. But if it's used uh, as a method of warfare or in, in this way to, to 
deal with people who are under the rubble or hiding behind the rubble, then uh, it would be an escalation. And I think the international community would have to take a very strong uh, stance against that and, and find ways to implement sanctions, such as uh, putting a ban on the trade of chemicals. We, we remember the chatter of a no-fly zone. Uh, you talked about that red line. Is it the same sort of red line? Um, yes and no. The no-fly zone was a request by the Ukrainian government to uh, prevent Russian planes from flying in Ukrainian skies. And uh, they themselves can declare a no-fly zone because they're, they're legally in control of their airspace. But in practice, they wanted NATO to enforce it. And there, NATO was really hesitant because it would mean that NATO would have to directly uh, engage in combat with uh, Russian aircraft and with ground forces and take out some of the air defense systems that the Russians have, which could plunge us into a war between NATO and Russia and with much larger consequences, including nuclear consequences. So NATO was very hesitant. In the case of chemical weapons, there's, the, NATO would not use chemical weapons back. We, this is something yeah. that's repugnant. But they might very well implement sanctions and, and it's definitely provide protective equipment to the Ukrainian forces so that they could operate in a chemically uh, poisoned atmosphere. Walter Jorn with us, Ph.D., Department of Defense Studies, Royal Military College of Canada. Uh, and there is thoughts that Russia is using or uh, may use in the future, um, even more so, uh, chemical weapons in their battle with Ukraine and their attempt to take it over. Walter, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. <laughs> Thank you. At your service, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Obviously, as we're, what are we, day 48 of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, many thought that uh, Ukraine would not be able to hold Russia off as long as they have. The longer this goes, what does this mean uh, for both sides? And uh, as well as chatter that Russia is still going to take Kiev. To talk more about all of this, Dr. Arne Kislenko with us. Margaret McMillan, Trinity One International Relations Program, Trinity College, University of Toronto, and Department of History at Ryerson University. Arne, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing well. Thank you, Scott. The longer this goes, does, does it benefit a side? Does it, does it help one more than the other? Many thought this would be over quite quickly. What about the fact it's dragging on? Yeah, I think very clearly this does not suit uh, Russian interests. This is uh, pretty much revealed, uh, the war to date at least has revealed that uh, Russia has been incapable of achieving its major strategic objectives, that being pretty clearly the, the occupation uh, of all of Ukraine, and that's uh, very clearly not materialized. So it is in a, a reorganizational phase. It's basically uh, consolidating its forces, resupplying them, and focusing on eastern Ukraine. Uh, no doubt uh, the Kremlin will spin that uh, for its own populace by way of saying, well, that was our intention in the first place. We were really there to denigrate the Ukrainian military and uh, you know, make a case for, for, uh, uh, for invading Ukraine. But really, it was all about um, you know, protecting uh, the eastern provinces. But I think very clearly this has been a failure for them. Uh, I don't know that we can say that a long war favors Ukraine because, of course, a long war is just going to be disastrous for anybody who fights it in terms of loss of life mm. and draining the economy and so on. The escalation for a broader war vis-a-vis the United States and NATO also exists. So I think it's uh, obviously in Ukraine's interest 
um, to fight uh, as they have to date, uh, but now hopefully uh, to move towards some sort of um, you know negotiated settlement. I, I got to be honest, I don't know that this ends well for Ukraine as much as we, we wanted to, I mean, we in the West, and as much as we would hope that their military success to date would translate into that. And I say it because it's unlikely that Russia will you know withdraw all the way and, and leave Ukraine to itself. That's just not in the cards. So um, that being said, we've certainly seen Russia uh, uh, retract, reload, uh, reorganize, whatever it is you want to call it. Uh, How concerned are you about what happens next as they try to get anything out of this, whether that means the southeast or there's even chatter that they're going to go back and take Kiev. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, we don't know, obviously, and it's important that everybody, you know, viewing the situation makes that clear. None of us have any expertise enough on Russia to say what exactly is going to happen. I think the reorganization phase is uh, is very likely to produce a consolidated military effort to take uh, the Donbass, to take uh, Luhansk and Donetsk, and to make that a, a Russian satellite. That's pretty obvious. Um, as for reinvading Ukraine and going after Kiev, a lot hinges upon the new military commander, Alexander Dvornikov, uh, the so-called butcher of Syria. And a lot's been made out of him, right? This is the first, uh, you know, one person or centralized command that Russia has deployed. He made his infamy in Syria. He's been the, the top military general for the Russians in Syria, um, renowned for aggressive and violent tactics. And certainly the long convoys that are starting to reappear uh, in Ukraine, which suggests that Russia is consolidating, reorganizing, resupplying, and so on. Um, but as a lot of military experts will point out, um, it's not necessary that he will be able to turn the tide, because I think the real fundamental problem of the Russian military has been at an organizational uh, level. It's about logistic. Uh, it's about commands within the military. It's about a lack of will and morale. And I don't know that one man will uh, will change that. So what we're left with is the very real specter of a prolonged war, uh, either in the east or in the rest of Ukraine, um, and that this could get even worse because Russia has got its back up against the proverbial wall. Putin has been uh, humiliated, uh, and he is not the man to sort of back out of this saying sorry or something along those lines. Um, so the longer it goes and the harder it is for Russia, there is, uh, of course, an incremental possibility uh, that there are more atrocities. We've already seen strong indicators of war crimes. There's suggestions, as I'm sure you know, the chemical weapons were used just the other day. Um, it could get really ugly, and it's pretty obvious that the Russian military and its frustration in getting it out on civilians. Um, so does that translate into a, an invasion and another attack at Kiev? It is quite possible, uh, but uh, all I can say is we're not done. We're, we're certainly going to see a lot more war in the weeks to come. Uh, is there any reason to to think that the strategy will change? You talked about chemical weapons. Obviously, Russia trying to get out with at least the southeast, so they come with something to show for all of this. Can NATO keep enough weaponry coming in the back door to to hold them off. I mean, we understand already a, a good portion of the Russian military has been exhausted. Uh, can can we keep enough stuff coming in the back door for them to do this? Yeah, I, I the short answer to that is probably not. For for a prolonged war, uh, Ukraine mm-hmm. needs an awful lot more than what they've been getting, and that that requires really heavy materials, particularly artillery and anti aircraft and so on. Um, you know, their success to date has been largely because they fought, in effect, the kind of, you know, guerrilla-style almost uh, warfare. They've been yeah. able to uh, compromise Russian convoys. The Russians have spread out around major urban centers. They're fighting in, in the cities. 
which you know sort of uh, favors the defender in a lot of ways. So I think what the Russians are trying to do by by consolidating the east and the south is to come away with something, right? To, to be able to say, well, we achieved some sort of goal, because of course Putin's uh, fate rests on their success. Uh, but it also may be an attempt to try to bait the Ukrainians into a much more open engagement, military engagement. Um, and a lot of military experts I know, generals and so on that have been talking about that, say, of course, that would not be in Ukraine's interest because then it would, you know, would uh, force them to fight uh, a Russian-style war and they just don't have enough to carry that. Um, but I think, you know, the success to date is heroic. It's something, of course, that the West has taken great interest in. Um, but we, we shouldn't fool ourselves if the Russians are prepared to throw even more than what they have. Um, this is going to get much more violence in, in, the, in the weeks to come. Even if Russia gets what it's want, what it wants, how does it take all of this back to its own people and try to justify it and say this was all worth it? Yeah, that's the magic question. And, and frankly, I don't think that uh, that he can. So Putin reminds me and, and everything I've been watching him and studying him for 20 years now. Um, you know, he is, of course, delusional. Uh, the question is, is he, you know, has he uh, totally lost it, as it were? Has he uh, developed some uh, mental illness and has, has uh, you know, really gone off the proverbial deep end? That's a really valid question because we've seen a lot of things in Russia that would suggest he's either without advisors or his advisors are useless or both. Um, and he very clearly didn't uh, calculate for either Ukrainian resistance, the limitations of his own military, the will of his people, NATO, the United States, world opinion. So that shocks me. I, I was utterly shocked that he went into this with such very uh, obviously poor planning. So what it means is that now he's kind of like a cornered animal. It's, it's almost unimaginable to me that with his uh, long history, the, the kind of man that he is, that he would be able to go back to his people short of some tangible victory and expect things to carry on. He, he's, he's very clearly um, delusional in a lot of ways and also very prone to the use of violence. He's demonstrated that for 20 years internationally as well as domestically. Um, and it's obvious now he's repressing his own people to try to prevent them from understanding what's going on in the broader war. So that is the magic question is, will the Russian people have enough? Uh, certainly a long protracted war with uh, economic sanctions upon them and, and a mounting loss of life. That has been the trigger in the past in Russia. Right? We shouldn't forget that, you know, the Russian uh, nation, Soviet Union, had enough of Afghanistan in part because of that reaction mm. to its people. So that is a wild card. Uh, I can't imagine him withdrawing short of conquering all of the East and probably the South. I think that would be a bare minimum uh, for him at this case. Uh, but, you know, we should point out that for all of the threats about the Vornikov or Chechens or Syrians getting into this war, the Ukrainians have done a, um, a really remarkable job mm. in fighting back. And uh, that wasn't calculated for, which is astonishing. Putin didn't think about the Ukrainian resistance, and he's finding that out the hard way. Dr. Arn Kislenko with us, Margaret Millen, uh, Trinity One International Relations Program, Trinity College, University of Toronto, Department of History at Ryerson. Arn, thanks for the time. Be well. It's my pleasure. You too. We know that China's been riding the fine line between uh, who they're supporting in uh, the conflict, conflict, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. To talk more about all of this, Gordon Holden, Director Emeritus, China Institute, Professor of Political Science with the University of Alberta, and is with us now. Gordon, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am well. Thank you so much, Scott. 
So, Gordon, how concerned are you that China sent six military planes uh, loaded with uh, weaponry to Serbia, which is obviously a, uh, a Russian airline, uh, Russian ally, rather? Um, and Serbia saying this is just all part of a regular delivery. What are your thoughts? Well, that may or may not be the case, and it's a bit like reports on use of chemical weapons. These things need to be carefully investigated. I don't take anything. Uh, I don't take the Chinese word at face value. Um, uh, we will see. Serbia uh, is um, has good relations with China. It has good relations with with Putin as well. Um, surprisingly, perhaps for many, uh, but uh, that is the reality. So, if if it, these are indeed weapons are going to end up in Ukraine, this will have consequences for, uh, I think, European relations generally with China and for U.S. relations. But I think we're still in a wait and see mode. China exports a lot of arms now. Um, well behind some other countries, but a lot of arms. They've got good quality kit, and their prices tend to be cheaper. Uh, if it's normal exports to what they view as a friendly country, fine. We'll see. Was this a secret in any way? Well, I think every Chinese arms um, shipment, virtually without exception, is um, under the under the cloak of secrecy. They don't publicize these things. You can't go on a website on the on the uh, um, Department of Ministry of Defense of China and find a list of exporters, of, of goods exported. I'm, not, I'm sure even for the U.S., not everything would be complete, but there's no great transparency there. And uh, very often the countries that they're selling to don't want transparency either. You can eventually, it tends to be known. I'm sure intelligence agencies pick it up. And these are usually big bulky things. When an aircraft appears at an airfield, um, or if a tank appears on a, 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 an army camp encampment, uh, it's going to be figured out and you can recognize Chinese kit. Uh, but these, this goes way back. Even to the civil war in Sudan, I can recall that the, uh, the Sudanese were using uh, Chinese weaponry, which when it was captured by the opposite side um, could be identified quite easily as such. So it's, uh, it's not something public. But it's where the destination is will be the critical thing. If it's going to stay in Serbia, that's one thing. If it's meant to be infiltrated into Ukraine, that's something else. Although I must say that it's not automatically, it's not obvious why it would be headed to to Ukraine, presumably for the Russian forces, because China has tilted strongly towards Russia. They've backpedaled a bit away from from 100% vocal support of Russia, but it, uh, I would find it a bit curious and surprising if China was going to have a balanced approach. Uh, you talked about uh, how they've, uh, w- well, at one time, well, we know they support Russia, but obviously walking a fine line here, saying they don't like conflict and they, they want this to be resolved and such. But how has this invasion Uh, of Ukraine by Russia, how has this changed their plans, China's plans moving forward? How has it changed their trajectory? Uh, As the world's watching what uh, Russia is doing, and and is well aware uh, China's capable of the same thing, if not more. I think it's upset their plan to some extent. Uh, I don't believe when, when Xi Jinping met with uh, Putin in Beijing just before the Olympics, that uh, the Chinese had much of an inkling that the Russians were about to engage in something as ambitious as a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. 
I bet they knew something was coming. I'm sure Putin may have told them, but I don't. I think they were generally surprised, and there's some reasons for that. They didn't move their own nationals out. At the same time, their, their foreign ministry was saying that the Russians weren't bombing cities. They were bombing cities. So there's. Uh, I think they were taken aback. I think it's it's caused a couple of problems. One, it uh, uh, they want to be close to Russia. It provides them a lot of strategic space. They get a lot of energy from Russia, other raw materials. They might get them even cheaper now that Russia has no alternatives. But I don't think China really wants a full... I'm pretty confident they don't want a full-scale war in Europe. They want a calm international environment. They are super dependent on foreign trade. And they don't want the world economy in a tailspin for a bunch of reasons. And I think also it may have given them, you say future plans, it may have given them some pause about any idea of acting soon on Taiwan because of the uh, unexpected strength of sanctions and the unanimity of the Western democracies uh, to implement such sanctions. I think that also surprised them. Uh, They were hoping that U.S. and Europe would be drifting apart. They've been encouraging that. Now they see them pulling together, at least temporarily. So I think it has changed some of their planning. Uh, Is there a point when this becomes a detriment, a liability for China? Is there there a point when Russia takes it too far, or or do they just sit back and and let it all happen? I think they have taken it too far already. And there are some effects for for China that are not good. Their Belt and Road Initiative had a land bridge, which was being used pretty regularly for unit trains with Chinese manufactured goods to um, uh, run through to Central and Western Europe. The two routes, one, one, both of them went through Russia. The other went, ended up going through Belarus. The other one went through Ukraine. Those are both basically severed now. Um, there's another land route that goes through across the Caspian Sea and up through uh, Turkey and on through Greece, etc. Um, but that is very costly and remote. Uh, so I think there's been economic, they, economic outcomes. They used to buy a lot of agricultural material from Ukraine, a lot of great, of uh, Oil seeds, competition sometimes for Canadian oil seeds. They bought wheat and other grains. Um, I think this has been um, a not good thing for the Chinese economy and something they don't welcome. Gordon Holden with us, uh, China Institute and Professor of the of Political Science with the University of Alberta, talking about China and their relationship with Russia and how this moves forward considering the invasion of Ukraine. Gordon, thanks for the time and insight. As always, much appreciated. Be well. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Right in the beginning, we immediately lent them a thermal camera and uh, night vision scope. Uh, so they could see while they were out there and, and lent them a few tools. We dropped traps off at their house, so they were ready, waiting to go. That's Ken Price of the Dream Team, who made a uh, family's dream come true and helped find uh, Dwight. We were talking about this earlier on. Uh, yeah. Uh, so you order a pizza, but you lose your cat. Is it worth it? Uh, well, I, I guess when the cat comes back, that's that's a good sign. So, uh, and you know, this is the big story in the hammer today. Uh, Dwight has been returned to his uh, rightful owner. Um, as far as the driver and the rest of it, and the reason why, uh, that's still a bit of a mystery. But uh, the good part is, at least, uh, Dwight is is back where he needs to be. Let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, columnist with your Hamilton Spectator. He's with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am. So am I to understand that actually the cat did come back the very next day? 
they the uh they went out and they did like a search of an area where the cat was dropped off and uh put some clothing down and and food that he would recognize and such and eventually a lady he uh a lady found him and thought it was him brought him to the vet and the rest is history as they say well your question about is it worth getting a pizza but losing a cat i would say the answer is 1000% yes <laughs> Every time that this should be actually a requirement, uh, you have to forfeit your cat. Nice. Well, not forfeit, but this is an opportunity to rid yourself of those giant allergy balls. There you go. Uh, just uh, and the, you can send the email to Scott Radley at uh, nine hundred chl. I have horrible cat allergies, and just the thought of having one around me is enough to make me get congested. So yes, any pizza man can take any cat that's on our property. Well, this certainly gives us a different perspective of this whole situation, doesn't it? Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I thought to myself, we've ex- been experiencing this global pandemic for the last couple of years, and people are just getting a little weird. Uh, there's just a lot of weird crap happening. You know, a lot of it's just people are um, it's like we're walking around and we're like we're, we're a pile of zombies. We just don't really realize what's going on around us. I think and this is clearly not what I'm referring to, because this is this whatever happened here this is strange behavior but i really do think that a lot of us are out of practice in how to socialize with people oh yeah and and that uh, that points to some of it and then is there something you want to tell us scott uh no no some sort of encounter you may have had that didn't go the way you thought no more than usual but um (laughs) but then you 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 add to that the fact that so the conversations and the interactions we have had with people for the past two years have been in social media, which is which is the worst way to communicate with people yeah. because everybody's an idiot on social media, I think. Hmm. And so now, you know, we're, we're it's going to take some time to get back to learning how to look at someone face to face and have a conversation with them that's not in whatever it is 280 characters or whatever in all caps with emojis cats slaps we're in a different world it's a weird space we're in right now it is a very weird space we're in right now there's no question about it there is no question about that uh gilbert godfrey passes away today at the age of uh, 67 apparently after a long illness this was a comedian's comedian uh he he pushed the envelope and, and many times was politically incorrect many times it cost him money uh making jokes about uh, uh 9-11 uh also uh, the earthquake in Japan and and, and 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 tsunami and such, and these hit him. Uh, he lost the deal with Disney. He lost the insurance uh, company commercial as well. Um, how does a comedian stay relevant by doing that kind of stuff? I mean, I hate to be so blunt, but if you are absolutely bland and vanilla and never say anything that gets anyone's attention. I think you do fade away. And look, at as you say, it cost him money, and it probably cost him fans. But I think that if you talk to other comedians, they would say, that's kind of what I aspire to be like, to be bold and brave enough, even if we disagree with what he said, even if some people say, but what he said was horrible. That's, that's, that's entirely a position that you can take. But I think the idea of of we see enough comedians now who are tiptoeing around scared to say anything about anything that, you know what? Sometimes you look at the people at the other end of it and you go, well, good for them for standing up for it and, and and taking a chance. Uh, We are, by the way, I don't know if you remember this. We're going to, 
at the very beginning of the show tonight, we're going to look back. Gilbert Gottfried was involved in what was probably the funniest moment ever in Hamilton television. And uh, we are going to be reliving that a little bit with the reporter from CHCH who was involved in that story. Um, Karen Cumming will be joining us right off the top of the show today. So yes. Well, it, now you piqued my connection. interest. Give us a bit of a hint here. What happened? Well, you're going to have to listen. You'll hear the clip right off the bat, but let's just say that whatever he said nearly caused the reporter to have a hernia of sorts. It was, it, was, <laughs> it, is, it is truly hilarious. And um, uh, yeah, we'll play that at the top and, uh, and talk to her. And by the way, if I can make one other plug for the show today, because I, you know, I normally don't do this, but you, I'm sure, at some point along the way have seen the movie Schindler's List. Uh, mm-hmm. Very different from Gilbert Gottfried. I, I don't know. There should have been some sort of break in there so there was not a segue. But, um, yeah, so Schindler's List. And if you remember in that movie, one of the central characters was the little girl in the red coat who mm-hmm. was wandering through the streets of Krakow. Anyway, um, she's now a 32-year-old woman, the girl, the woman who played her, and is now working on the Ukraine-Poland border helping refugees Wow. And she joins us on the show tonight at 7 o'clock. We're going to be chatting with her about the symbolism and the connections with the movie and what she's doing these days. It's an unbelievable story. Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up right after the 6 o'clock news. You can also read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Scott, as always, have a great show. Thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's a wrap for us. Thanks for listening. Always appreciated. Thanks to Will Weber and Will Erskine. Thanks to Diana Weeks and Dave uh, Woodard. And, of course, to you. Did we get a last word? All right. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, for the last word. Just a thought. The government picked a fight with the virus, and the virus won't lay down and die. They just won't. It just won't quit. Thank you.